The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Lord, teach thy people to love thy house best of all dwellings, thy scriptures best of all books, thy sacraments best of all gifts, the communion of saints best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, the first of days, holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. Well, we are in John's Gospel. For those of you who are joining us perhaps for the first time or for those of you who forgot where we were, we are in John's Gospel and we are in chapter 9. And we've got a lot of ground to cover today. So we're going to jump right in. What we're going to do is we're going to read through the entire chapter, chapter 9. It's not an altogether long chapter, but the entire chapter deals with the same event. That is the healing of this man who was born blind. And I think the best way to understand it and come away with some valuable takeaway lessons is to treat it as a whole rather than divide it up. So if you have your Bibles, open them please to John chapter 9. And let's go ahead and read through the text and then we'll come back and take a closer look. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some says, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but now he, how he sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. 
Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciples, but we are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind." Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you see, we see your guilt remains. This is the sixth miracle that John introduces us to in this gospel. He is very clear when you get to the end of this gospel in chapter 20 that he has been selective in his material. He makes that very clear. In fact, in John chapter 20, one of the things that he says is that Jesus did many other signs that are not recorded in this book. So he acknowledges the fact that Jesus did a great many things. In fact, he actually says that if all the works of Jesus were to be written down, the world could not contain the books. So he's telling us that he's been selective. But he's also clear he has chosen these specific events so that people may know that Jesus is the Christ. And that by believing, they may have life in his name. In other words, he has recorded these particular events in order for us to learn something very specific from them. So what are these six events, these seven miracles, this being the sixth one? Well, the first, of course, we've already looked at, and that is the turning of the water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, in which Jesus revealed himself as the one who is indeed the Messiah, the promised Savior. You have the healing of the nobleman's son, which is a reminder to us that Jesus is the one who can restore all things. You have the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, which we said is a picture of our own spiritual inability. Jesus came there to the man, and we're told he was surrounded by the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. That's a picture of our own spiritual inability to come to God. And yet Christ asks him the question, do you want to be made well? It's a good question for all of us. Many people say, of course I want to be made well. But of course we realize that if we are made well, that entails a change in our life, change in our lifestyle. 
You have the feeding of the multitude. That is a reminder to us that Jesus is the true bread from heaven who comes down. And whoever feeds on him shall never be hungry. Whoever believes in him shall never thirst. You have Christ walking on the water, a reminder that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, that even the forces of nature are subject to his authority. And then you have this story here, the restoration of the sight to the man born blind. And the final miracle that John records is the raising of Lazarus, which we will get to in a little while in the 11th chapter. Now, somebody might say, well, what about the resurrection? That certainly is a big miracle. It is a big miracle, but it wasn't one of Jesus' miracles. It was God who raised his son from the dead. But these are the signs, these are the miracles that Jesus performed. And you'll note that they are called signs in John's gospel as opposed to miracles, which is not to say that they weren't miracles, but John refers to them as signs because they point beyond themselves to something important. In other words, they are meant, as he said, to teach us something about Jesus Christ that we may come to know him and in coming to know him may come to know life everlasting. So the question we have to ask ourselves as we begin today is, what are we to learn from this particular miracle or sign? Well, we started looking at it last week. We took a look at the whole issue of suffering in the Christian life. What is God doing in the midst of the suffering? Because that was the question the disciples asked when they came upon this man. It was a man who'd been born blind and they wanted to know who sinned, this man or his parents. They assumed that if anybody was suffering, if anybody was going through difficulty or hardship, it was because they were under the judgment of God. And of course, Jesus completely rejects that notion. And we talked about there are means by which God can work in our lives, even through the midst of suffering, for corrective purposes, for constructive purposes, but sometimes, as in this case, for God-glorifying purposes. But is that the only lesson we are meant to learn from this story? I don't think so. In fact, I think there are a number of very important lessons that we can glean from this story of Jesus and the man born blind that apply directly to our lives. Now, in order to uncover those lessons, we have to take a look at the main characters. And the two main characters in this story are the man and Jesus. The disciples really are sort of off to the side. It's really the man and Jesus. What do we know about this man? Well, the first thing we know about the man is that he was blind. Now, I pointed out to you that blindness was a common affliction in the first century world. People lived in a primitive time. They lived in an agrarian culture. They worked around livestock. It was also a violent time, so many people lost their eyesight as a result of accidents or the result of being wounded in battle. And, of course, they had a very primitive medicine in the first century, and so people oftentimes came down with diseases of the eyes which would rob them of their eyesight. So that was, it was an all too common affliction in the first century world. But the important thing to note about this man is that this is not a man who had lost his sight. This is a man who never had it. He was born blind. And as a result of being born blind, he didn't even know what he was missing. You know, a person who has their eyesight, and as age comes along, that eyesight diminishes, or they develop cataracts, or whatever it is, they know what it is to lose eyesight. But this man didn't even know what he was missing. He had spent his entire life in darkness. Here's something else. He didn't even ask for sight. If you read the story carefully, because he'd been born blind and had only known darkness, he didn't even know to ask for sight. He didn't even know what sight would be. 
We're told that he was begging for alms. He was begging for money. Didn't know what to ask for because he had never known what he was missing. And yet here's something else about this man. In spite of all of this, he was nevertheless incredibly fortunate. That's what I want to suggest to you. Why was he incredibly fortunate? Because he just so happened to be there on this particular day as the Savior of the world was passing by. I think one of the lessons that we are meant to glean from this story is that this man's physical condition is a description of our own spiritual condition apart from Jesus Christ. We are born blind. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans. There is no one who seeks God. And most of us, because we're born blind, don't even know what we're missing. We don't even know what to ask for from God because we are blind. And yet we are fortunate in that we live in an age in which Jesus Christ has come near to us. The gospel is readily available to us because of the supernatural work of God, the Holy Spirit, as a result of Pentecost. Jesus is available to every man and every woman. All who call upon him will be saved. So that's the first lesson I think we are meant to glean from this story, that this man's physical condition is meant to be a picture of our own spiritual condition apart from Christ. We are spiritually blinded. We live in utter darkness. We don't know the difference between what is right and wrong. And what's more, we don't even know what to ask for. But hallelujah, Jesus Christ has come Near. That's the man. Here's the other character, of course, and that is the Lord Jesus himself. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the first thing we can say about Jesus, and it's pretty obvious from the story, is that he is no mere man. He is someone who has this ability to let the blind see, make the lame leap for joy. This is a man who cleansed lepers. We've taken a look at all of those other five miracles that precede this one. And we can see that Jesus is an extraordinary individual. That's one of the things that Nicodemus acknowledged in John chapter 3, isn't it? There was much that Nicodemus did not know about Jesus, but he knew this much. He said, no one could do the things you are doing unless God were with him. So it's important that we understand that Jesus Christ is no mere man. <laughs> and yet at the same time, it's important that we understand that he is a man. He's no mere man, but he is a man. This is the Christian claim about Jesus Christ, that he is the unique God-man. He is fully man. He walked this earth there is historical evidence for his existence, and yet we believe that he is God incarnate. God in the flesh is taken on frail, fallen human flesh. And there is no person in all of history who is like him. Now, what does it mean that Jesus is a man? It means that he understands what you and I are going through. That's what the passage from Hebrews that you're going to hear from Hebrews chapter 2 in today's church service is all about. That because he has been tempted in every way just as we are, he understands and he is mighty to save. Think about the humanity of Jesus. 
Because Jesus was a human, because he understood, because he took on our flesh, he was compassionate. He reminds us that God is not disinterested, God is not removed, God is not merely transcendent up there, far distant from us, but he is a God who is compassionate, he understands. We're told that on one occasion Jesus saw the people, Jesus himself was exhausted, and yet he saw the people, and rather than turning away from them, we're told he had compassion on them, for they were harried and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The man Jesus was compassionate. The man Jesus became tired like we sometimes become tired. You remember the story of how the disciples were on the Sea of Galilee when a great storm erupted? And where was Jesus in the midst of the storm? While they're bailing furiously, we're told that Jesus was asleep in the stern. Jesus became tired as we become tired. Jesus became sad. There are two occasions where we're told Jesus openly wept. One, of course, was at the tomb of Lazarus, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And we're told that as he was entering Jerusalem, on Palm Sunday, he stopped on a brow of the hill overlooking the city. Those of you who have gone to the Holy Land with me, you have been there. You've seen that little chapel, the Dominus Flevit. It means the Lord wept. He wept openly for Jerusalem. He was moved. In the story about Lazarus, when it says Jesus wept, the text actually in Greek says he snorted like an animal. He was so overwhelmed, he hyperventilated in sorrow. Jesus sometimes became angry. He drove the money changers out of the temple. And in one version, he did it with a whip. So much for Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus became frustrated. On one occasion, a man whose child was an epileptic was, brought his child to Jesus, and he said, I, I took him to your disciples and asked them to cast out the unclean spirit, and they weren't able to do it. And you remember what Jesus said on that occasion? He says, oh, how much longer do I have to be with you people? Oh, a preacher sometimes feels like that, you know, from never here, but in other places you get frustrated because you keep saying the same thing and nobody seems to be listening. Jesus became very frustrated with the disciples. Jesus became lonely. He became troubled in his spirit. Certainly we have an example of that in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what all of this means is that Jesus Christ, while he is God incarnate, while he is the Son of God, he is a God that is relatable. We can understand him and he understands us and he understands the challenges and the difficulties and the temptations we face. And he understood this man's affliction. And when everybody else was looking for blame, who sinned? His parents or him? Jesus instead, through the eyes of love, saw compassion and had mercy and healed him. My favorite quote from Dorothy L. Sayers. She said, for whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death. But at least God had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game God is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience 
from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. The old song got it right. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and pains to bear. Jesus understands. That's why we can go to him. That's why we can cast our cares on him because he cares for us. What a friend indeed. So it means that Jesus could empathize and he could save. That's what the author of Hebrews says. We have a great high priest who is able to empathize with us in our struggles. For he has been tempted in every way just as we are. And because Jesus is able to empathize with us, he engages with us, listen to this, as individuals. He doesn't just treat us as the mass of humanity, but he is the God whose property is always to have mercy, and he is the God who treats us as individuals. I want you to notice how he heals this blind man. This is not Jesus' only encounter with blind people. We have the story in Mark's gospel of Jesus' encounter with blind Bartimaeus. And we're told that Jesus really didn't even touch the man. He simply told him to go and present himself and to the priest, and he was healed. You know, Jesus didn't even have to touch him. And the same is true for the lepers on the border of Samaria. We're told that there were these lepers on the border of Samaria, and Jesus told them the same thing, to go and wash, and, and they would be made clean. And we're told that as they were making their way, they were cleansed. Of course, one of them came back, the rest didn't, but one came back and gave thanks. But the point of the, what I'm trying to make here is that Jesus didn't even lay his hands on them. He simply spoke the word, and by the sheer power of his word, these people were restored, whatever their affliction. And yet, in this particular case, Jesus says something really bizarre. Some of you might even say it's rather gross. Jesus, we're told, takes some of the dust, some of the dirt, and he spits on it, and he makes a mud pack. And he smears it on the man's eyes. And he heals the man. Now, why didn't he treat this man the same way that he treated the others? Just, just speak the word. <laughs> the only explanation that can be given is that Jesus was dealing with this man as an individual. This was a man who never seen this was a man who was an outcast from society because most people in that day did believe that if you were afflicted with something, it was because either you or your parents had done something notorious. And here came a man who actually was willing to touch him, to meet him where he was, something tactile. You know, one of the things that I have learned as a minister, particularly when it comes to pastoral ministry, is that there really is something called the ministry of presence. There are times, quite frankly, when you are dealing with a tragedy or a loss and, you know, you go in there and you're the minister, you're supposed to say something, and I'll be honest with you, there's nothing to say. 
at least not at that particular moment. The only thing that the person needs is a loving touch, is an arm around the shoulders, is a hand to be held. And that's what we see here with Jesus in this story. We see a Jesus who is compassionate. You know, it's wonderful to read the commentaries most of the time. But, you know, some of the time what you find is people are really offended by the way Jesus healed this man. Some people say, oh, that's offensive that Jesus would use spit and mud to heal anybody. Other people have said, you know, this is just a perfect example of how primitive people were in the first century and how primitive the Gospels are. But I want you to understand that offensive or not, primitive or not, it was effective. It worked. The man himself admitted that. He said, I don't know. Since the beginning of time, nobody has been able to make a man who was born blind see. But this man did it. Maybe he used spit. Maybe he used mud. Give me a bucket of it. Because it made a difference in my life. What can we glean from this today? I think we can glean from this today that Jesus is still the unique God-man. The Jesus that this man encountered in the first century is the Jesus that you and I still encounter in the 21st century. He still has compassion for the lost, for the hurting, for those who are weak, for those who are afflicted. Whatever your struggle, whatever your difficulty, Jesus Christ knows. He knows. And he is still willing to meet you as an individual. That's the unique claim of Christianity. Is that our God meets us as individuals. He doesn't treat us as just the mass of humanity. Whoever you are, he wants to meet you. He wants to have a relationship with you. You've heard me say this a million times, but it bears repeating. And you'll hear me repeat it until the day I die. Christianity is not about religion. It's about a relationship. God wants to have a personal relationship with you. And it's because he has come down in the flesh that he can. He's still willing to meet you as an individual. But whether or not that will happen will depend upon whether or not you find him and his gospel to be offensive. You think that you're so intelligent, so wise, so advanced that the gospel you find is offensive to you today? To many people it is. The gospel of Jesus Christ they find to be offensive, particularly for the claims that Jesus makes. Like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. That's offensive to many people today. They say, oh, I can't believe that. If God is good, he has to provide many ways. If God is good, look, he doesn't have to provide any way. The fact that he provides a way is a sign that he is merciful. He is gracious. Do you find the gospel primitive? Oh, do you think we're so advanced in our 21st century scientific age that we know better than those who went before? I tell you, if you come to Jesus Christ, set aside your prejudice, pray to him and say, Lord, there's much that I do not understand, but open my eyes as you open the eyes of this man, the promises that he will do it. It will be effective and it will change your life forever. That's his invitation. He says, come unto me, 
all ye that travail and are heavy laden. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are you heavy laden today? How many have burdens that you would very much like to lay down? Come to him. Come to him with all your fears, all your doubts. Come to him with all your troubles, all your sin, all your past. And give it to him. And he will do for you what he did for this man. Now the story doesn't stop there. That's the miracle and it is a marvelous miracle. But as they say, no good deed goes unpunished. And of course the problem is that Jesus had performed this miracle on what? It was on the Sabbath day, absolutely. And because Jesus had performed this miracle on the Sabbath, he ran afoul of the Jewish religious leaders. Sabbath observance was very important to the Jews. It was one of the Ten Commandments. It was the Sixth Commandment, recorded in Exodus chapter 20. The Sabbath was to be a day of rest. And as far as the Pharisees were concerned, there were no exceptions to the rule except theirs. Their exceptions to the rule. And they had plenty of them. You were not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath, but one of the exceptions was that if somebody was in mortal danger. In other words, if somebody fell down a flight of stairs and was in danger of bleeding out, you could attend to the person. You could help that person to prevent them from dying. But while you could prevent them from dying, <laughs> here's an interesting thing, you couldn't do any work to make them better. You could keep them from getting worse, that was the exception, but you could not help them to get better. That was going to have to wait until the Sabbath was over. So think about a person falling down a flight of stairs and badly spraining their ankle. Well, you could help them up into the house, but you could not put water on the sprain in order to alleviate the pain. That would have to wait until the next day. You got no medicine, no medical treatment for a toothache or an earache or something like that. Why? Because it was not a life-threatening affliction. How many of you have ever had a bad toothache or a bad earache? It's misery. How would you like to be told, no, sorry, wait another 24 hours and then we'll deal with you? That's the way it was with the Pharisees. They had all of these rules, all of these regulations, and the possible exceptions were very narrow indeed. And that was the problem with this particular man. This was not a man who the Pharisees regarded as being in mortal danger. This was a man who had been born blind. For 30-some years, presumably, he had been blind. He was going to be no worse off the next day than he was this day. Jesus could have waited. If Jesus wanted to heal him, fine. But he doesn't have to do it on the Sabbath. Wait until Sunday. Heal him the next day of the week. That was the problem here, you see. But as we can tell from the story, that's not the way it worked out. Jesus did heal this man. And it's because he didn't see it the same way that the Pharisees saw it. In Luke's gospel, on one occasion, Jesus was in the synagogue and there was a man there who was afflicted and they wanted to know whether Jesus was going to 
heal him on the Sabbath. And of course, Jesus went ahead and did that. And he, again, incurred their wrath, the religious leader's wrath. But it's interesting how he responded. He said, which one of you, if your ox falls into a well or a ditch, or your child falls into a ditch or into a well, leaves him there saying, well, you're okay down there. I'll get you out tomorrow, son. Jesus says, every single one of you will do everything in your power to get the ox out of the ditch, to get your son out of the well. And by talking about the ox in the ditch, what Jesus is reminding us of is that regardless of man-made regulations, people are more important than animals to God. People are more important than animals. Furthermore, Jesus makes it very clear, the Sabbath was meant to be a blessing, not a burden. It's meant to be a day of rest for people, a reminder of God's provision and grace. But it was never meant to be this burden, this, this great heavy load that people had to carry around and follow all the rules and regulations for fear that they were going to mess up and God was going to get them. So Jesus completely overturns this whole system. He overturns this whole system. And the result... The result of all of this was that he incurred their wrath. It wasn't just that Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. That was bad enough. He redoubled the problem by the way that he healed. On that previous occasion, the man in the synagogue, Jesus simply spoke the word. Now, there was nothing against, nothing in the law that was against speaking. Lots of people spoke on the Sabbath day, and that's what Jesus did. And he bested them on that occasion. But on this particular occasion, as far as they were concerned, there was an undeniable fact that he had worked. He didn't just heal, he made mud. Now you say, not work? Listen to me. The Jews had a rule, the Pharisees and the scribes had a rule, that if you spat on the ground and it made a furrow in the dust... The spittle, that was plowing. I know we laugh about this, but I'm telling you, this is how serious they were. Now, to their credit, they took the law seriously. They took the scriptures far more seriously than we do. So that was to their credit. But you do begin to realize how ridiculous this becomes. Now, if you spat on the ground on the Sabbath and it hit a rock and it didn't make a furrow in the ground, you were okay. Well, Jesus had made this mud with the spittle and placed it on the man's eyes, and this was undeniable. But the problem was that it was difficult to get at Jesus. He was popular with the crowds. They sent off a group to arrest Jesus on a previous occasion, and we're told that they came back empty-handed, and they said, well, where, where is the man that we sent you to get? And they said, we've never heard a man speak like this man. So they knew that they couldn't get a Jesus right away. They were going to have to do something more insidious. They were going to have to make the attack an oblique attack. And so what they decided to do was to go after the man who'd been healed himself. If they couldn't get a Jesus, they would get at the man himself. And you'll know what happens. He is brought in and he is interrogated. And then when they get nowhere, they bring in the boy's parents. And when they get nowhere with them, they bring the man back in And in the end, what happens to the poor fellow? He gets thrown out. 
He gets expelled from the community, expelled from the synagogue because of his association with Jesus. And yet there are a couple of things here I want to notice, and I want to go through it very quickly, but very important. I want you to notice that in the midst of the persecution, this man's witness about Jesus Christ sharpens. None of us likes to face persecution or difficulty for the sake of the gospel. We would much sooner avoid it. But I want you to understand that God can work even through the persecution that you might experience for the sake of the gospel to sharpen your witness. And that's what we see happening with this man. The first thing they say is, how did you get healed? And he says, the man Jesus. But later on, they say to him, well, he healed you. You're the one that's been healed. What do you think of him? We don't know what to make of him. What do you think of him? And he said he is a prophet. See, the more persecution, the more he begins to understand and think through the issues and sharpen his response and really think through the issues as to who this Jesus is. Well, he's a man, but he's, he can't be just a man. My goodness, he opened my eyes. I've been blind since birth. Nobody's ever done that. So he must be a prophet. But by the time you get to the end of the story, when he actually encounters Jesus for a second time, Jesus said, believe in the Son of Man. And he says, Lord, who is this Son of Man? That is the Savior that I might believe in him. And what does Jesus say? It is he that is speaking to you. And we're told that this man said, I believe. And he fell at the Lord's feet and he worshiped him. See how he grew in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. Jesus was first just a man, then he's a prophet, then he's the Savior of the world, his Savior and yours. So you see that. Here's something else that he does that I think is really important, this man. Eventually at the end, they're asking him all these questions. He's no theologian, and they're just drilling him left and right, giving him a lot of time, a lot of guff and finally he certainly says just suddenly blurts out he says look I don't know who he is but I know this much I once was blind but now I see let me ask you this question this morning can you say that about Jesus Christ I said at the beginning that this story is a picture of you and me spiritually speaking what this man was physically, you and I are spiritually. Can you say with this man, I once was blind, but now I see? I may not be a theologian. I may not have any seminary training. I may not be well-schooled or well-read in all of these things. But this much I know, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. I want you to answer that question for yourself. Can you say that? Because if you can say that, you don't need to be a theologian. You don't have to have a PhD in theology. You can bear witness to Jesus Christ because no one can deny that fact. No one could say to this man, that's not true. That didn't happen to you. It did happen to him. And it was his story to tell. And if you're a Christian today and Christ has saved you, you have a story to tell. And like this man, it is incumbent upon you to tell that story. I once was blind, but now I see. But there's one final lesson here that I want to highlight for us. In the midst of all of this, yes, the persecution was intense, and yes, this man's 
testimony was sharpened as a consequence. But we have to understand there will be a price for following Jesus. That's the final thing this lesson teaches us. You would think, well, that was all wonderful for the man. Oh, life was rosy from there on out. It was not. He paid a price for his faithfulness. Two things happened to him. First of all, we're told his family abandoned him. None of us likes to even think about that. But it happened to him. They brought in his parents and they said, is this your son? Yes, it's his son. Were you born, was he born blind? Yes. But then they were so fearful of the religious leaders that they said, well, how did it happen? Tell us what happened. What do you think of this, Jesus? And their answer is, don't ask us. He's of age. Ask him. They wouldn't even stand up for their son. They wouldn't even defend him. They abandoned him out of fear. And the final thing that happens, of course, is that we are told they cast him out. You were born in utter sin, verse 34, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Here's the main point I want you to take home today if you claim to be a Christian. And that is this. If you are going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, there is a price for you to pay. Nobody likes to think about that. We just want to think about following Jesus and everything's going to be wonderful and everything's going to be great. And there's no question about the fact, whatever your affliction, Jesus is capable of healing it. But do not think that if he heals you and you bear witness to that, that the world is going to like it. This story does not end on everything being wonderful. It does not end, and they lived happily ever after. It ends with this man's family disowning him and everybody else throwing him out. And that is the price of faithfulness. Turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 Verses 16 and following. Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and to the Gentiles. When they deliver you, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Listen, we shouldn't be surprised when persecution comes our way. We shouldn't be surprised when our loved ones even reject us or hate us. Jesus said it would happen. In Luke's gospel, he says, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy of me. Jesus makes it very clear. He comes even before our family members. On that particular occasion, somebody said, Lord, I'll follow you, but first let me go and bury my father. That seems like a pretty reasonable request. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, let the dead bury the dead. 
Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't want us to honor our mother and our father. That's the fifth commandment. But what he is saying is if your mother and your father or your children or your friends or your associates are more important than me, he's saying, and this is Jesus, not me, you're not worthy of me. You know, we oftentimes think of Jesus as the prince of peace. Jesus, as I said, meek and mild. Jesus said, I've not come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Father will be divided from son. Mother will be divided from daughter. Mother-in-law from daughter-in-law. You say, well, my goodness, what is that all about? It's because that's what the truth does, my friends. It's not that Jesus came to be the great divider. It's that the truth will inevitably divide. To follow him is to follow him no matter what the cost. I think in this age, particularly in this age in which we see shifting morals, and they are dramatically shifting. Just think about sexual morality in America in the 21st century. Do you realize that in 2008... How many of you can remember back to 2008? How many of you think 2008 is a long time ago? Do you realize that in 2008, the citizens of California voted against gay marriage? California! <laughs> against it. How quickly things have shifted in this period of time. How many years is that? 2008 to 2024. 16 years. How quickly things have shifted in 16 years. And now if you stand for biblical morality, for what the scriptures teaches, you're going to be hated by all. You may even be hated by your family members. They may say, well, if you don't love me, I want nothing to do with you. And by loving them, what they mean is affirming everything they do. And you find that you are disowned by family and hated by all. But here's the question. Here's the question. And the only question, really. Have your eyes been opened to Jesus Christ? Can you say, I once was blind, but now I see? Have you grown in your knowledge and love of the Lord like this man did? Are you willing to be abandoned by your family and by your friends and by your loved ones as this man was? Are you willing to worship Christ as this man did? What does it mean to worship Christ? It doesn't mean to just show up on Sunday and go to church. We say it every Sunday in the liturgy. And here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, what? Ourselves, our souls and bodies to be a reasonable, holy, and what? Living sacrifice. You know the problem with a living sacrifice? It always crawls off the altar. <laughs> but that's the question. Are you prepared to be a living sacrifice for him who sacrificed everything for you? Because that's what it's all about. And it may be the breaking of relationships, dear relationships, familial relationships, but the promise is nobody who gives up family or friends for my sake, Jesus said, will not receive a thousandfold more in the kingdom to come. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who knew so much about suffering for the sake of Christ, put it well. In his little book, The Cost of Discipleship, he said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Cheap grace. Talk about grace, he said, but there's, there's a cheap grace and there's a costly grace. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his own son. You were bought with a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace. Because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us all. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. May God open our eyes, sharpen our witness, and grant us the courage and the grace to suffer the loss of all things that we may gain him who is everything, all in all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this story of the man born blind. There is so much we can learn. Grant us the grace to learn it, to realize that this is a picture of us, to follow this man's example, to find in you the one who is to be worshipped, praised, and adored. Open our eyes, Lord Christ, and grant us the courage to follow you to the very end. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.